Chapter 8 of Varney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jonathan Horniblow. Varney the Vampire, Volume 1, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 8. The Coffin. The Absence of the Dead. The Mysterious Circumstance. And the Consternation of George. They were all silent for a few moments as they looked around them with natural feelings of curiosity. Two of that party had, of course, never been in that vault at all, and the brothers, although they had descended into it upon the occasion nearly a year before of their father being placed in it, still looked upon it with almost as curious eyes as they who now had their first sight of it. If a man be at all of a thoughtful or imaginative cast of mind, some curious sensations are sure to come over him upon standing in such a place where he knows around him lie, in the calmness of death, those in whose veins have flowed kindred blood to him, who bore the same name, and who preceded him in the brief drama of his existence, influencing his destiny and his position in life probably largely by their actions, compounded of their virtues and their vices. Henry Bannerworth and his brother George were just the kind of persons to fill strongly such sensations. Both were reflective, imaginative, educated young men, and, as the light from the wax candle flashed upon their eyes, it was evident how deeply they felt the situation in which they were placed. Mr. Chillingworth and Marchdale were silent. They both knew what was passing in the minds of the brothers, and they had too much delicacy to interrupt a train of thought which, although from having no affinity with the dead who lay around, they could not share in, and yet they respected. Henry, at length, with a sudden start, seemed to recover himself from his reverie. "'This is a time for action, George,' he said, "'and not for romantic thought. Let us proceed.' "'Yes, yes,' said George, and he advanced a step towards the centre of the vault. "'Can you find out amongst all these coffins?' "'for well, there seem to be nearly twenty, said Mr. Chillingworth. "'Which is the one we seek?' "'I think we may,' replied Henry. "'Some of the earlier coffins of our race, I know, "'were made of marble and others of metal, "'both of which materials, I expect, "'would withstand the encroaches of time for a hundred years at least.' "'Let us examine,' said George. "'There were shelves or niches built into the walls all round.' on which the coffins were placed, so that there could not be much difficulty in a minute examination of them all, the one after the other. When, however, they came to look, they found that decay's offensive fingers had been more busy than they could have imagined, and that whatever they touched of the earlier coffins crumbled into dust before their very fingers. In some cases the inscriptions were quite illegible, and, in others, the plates that had borne them had fallen to the floor of the vault, so that it was impossible to say which coffin they had belonged. Of course, the more recent and fresh-looking coffins they did not examine, because they could not have anything to do with the object of that melancholy visit. "'We shall arrive at no conclusion,' said George. "'All seems to have rotted away amongst those coffins "'where we might expect to find one belonging to Marmaduke Bannerworth, our ancestor.' "'Here is a coffin-plate,' said Marchdale, taking one from the floor. "'He handed it to Mr. Chillingworth, who, upon an inspection of it, 
close to the light, exclaimed, "'It must have belonged to the coffin you seek.' "'What says it?' "'Ye mortal remains of Marmaduke Bannerworth, yeoman, God rest his soul, A.D. 1640.' "'It is the plate belonging to his coffin,' said Henry, "'and now our search is fruitless.' "'It is so, indeed,' exclaimed George, "'for how can we tell to which of the coffins that have lost the plates this one really belongs?' "'I should not be so hopeless,' said Marchdale. "'I have, from time to time, in the pursuit of antiquarian law, which I was once fond of, entered many vaults, and I have always observed that an inner coffin of metal was sound and good, while the outer one of wood had rotted away, and yielded at once to the touch of the first hand that was laid upon it.' "'But, admitting that to be the case,' said Henry, "'how does that assist us in the identification of the coffin?' "'I have always, in my experience, "'found the name and rank of the deceased engraved upon the lid of the inner coffin, "'as well as being set forth in a much more perishable manner "'on the plate which was once secured to the outer one.' "'He is right,' said Mr. Chillingworth. "'I wonder why we never thought of that. "'If your ancestor was buried in a leaden coffin,' there will definitely be no difficulty in finding which it is. Henry seized the light, and, proceeding to one of the coffins, which seemed to be a mass of decay, he pulled away some of the rotted woodwork, and then suddenly exclaimed, "'You are quite right. Here is a firm, strong, leaden coffin within, which, although quite black, does not appear to otherwise have suffered.' "'What is the inscription on that?' asked George. With difficulty the name on the lid was deciphered, but it was found not to be the coffin of him whom they sought. "'We can make short work of this,' said Marchdale, "'by only examining those leaden coffins which have lost the plates from their outer cases. They do not appear to be many in such a state.' He then, with another light, which he lighted from the one that Henry now carried, commenced actively assisting in the search, which was carried on silently for more than ten minutes. Suddenly, Mr. Marchdale cried in a tone of excitement, "'I have found it! It is here!' They all immediately surrounded the spot where he was, and then he pointed to the lid of the coffin, which he had been rubbing with his handkerchief in order to make the inscription more legible, and said, "'See! It is here!' By the combined light of the candles they saw the words, "'Marmaduke Bannerworth, Yeoman,' 1640. Yes, there can be no mistake here, said Henry. This is the coffin, and it shall be opened. I have the iron crowbar here, said Marchdale. It is an old friend of mine, and I am accustomed to the use of it. Shall I open the coffin? Do so, do so, said Henry. They stood around in silence, while Mr. Marchdale, with much care, proceeded to open the coffin, which seemed of great thickness, and was of solid lead. It was probably the partial rotting of the metal, in consequence of the damps of that place, which made it easier to open the coffin than it otherwise would have been. But certainly it was the top that came away remarkably easy. Indeed, so easily did it come off, that another supposition might have been hazarded, namely that it had never been effectively fastened. The few moments that elapsed were ones of very great suspense to everyone there present, and it would, indeed, be quite safe to assert that all the world was for the time forgotten in the absorbing interest which appertained to the affair which was in progress. 
The candles were now both held by Mr. Chillingworth, and they were so held as to cast a full and clear light upon the coffin. Now the lid slid off, and Henry eagerly gazed into the interior. There lay something certainly there, and an audible, thank God, escaped his lips. "'The body is there!' exclaimed George. "'All right,' said Marchdale. "'Here it is. "'There is something, and what else can it be?' "'Hold the lights!' said Mr. Chillingworth. "'Hold the lights, some of you. "'Let us be quite certain.' George took the lights, and Mr. Chillingworth, without any hesitation, dipped his hands at once into the coffin, and took up some fragments of rags which were there. They were so rotten that they fell to pieces in his grasp, like so many pieces of tinder. There was a death-like pause for a few moments, and then Mr. Chillingworth said in a low voice, "'There is not the least vestige of a dead body here.' Henry gave a deep groan as he said, "'Mr. Chillingworth, can you take it upon yourself to say that no corpse has undergone the process of decomposition in this coffin?' "'To answer your question exactly, as probably in your hurry you have worded it,' said Mr. Chillingworth, "'I cannot take it upon myself to say any such thing.' But this I can say, namely, that in this coffin there are no animal remains, and it is quite impossible that any corpse enclosed here could, in any lapse of time, have so utterly and entirely disappeared. "'I am answered,' said Henry. "'Good God!' exclaimed George. "'And has this but added another damning proof to those we have already on our minds?' of one of the most dreadful superstitions that ever the mind of man conceived? "'It would seem so,' said Marchdale sadly. "'Oh, that I were dead! This is terrible! God of heaven! Why are these things? Oh, if I were but dead, and so spared the torture of supposing such things possible!' "'Think again, Mr. Chillingworth! I pray you think again!' cried Marchdale. "'If I were to think for the remainder of my existence,' he replied. I could come to no other conclusion. It is not a matter of opinion, it is a matter of fact. You are positive, then, said Henry, that the dead body of Marmaduke Bannerworth has not rested here? I am positive. Look for yourselves. The lead is but slightly discoloured. It looks tolerably clean and fresh. There is not a vestige of putrefaction. No bones, no dust even." They did all look for themselves, and the most casual glance was sufficient to satisfy the most sceptical. "'All is over,' said Henry. "'Let us now leave this place. And all I can now ask of you, my friends, is to lock this dreadful secret deep in your own hearts.' "'It shall never pass my lips,' said Marchdale. "'Nor mine. You may depend,' said the doctor." I was much in hopes that this night's work would have had the effect of dissipating, instead of adding to, the gloomy fancies that now possess you. "'Good heavens!' cried George. "'Can you call them fancies, Mr. Chillingworth?' "'I do, indeed. Have you yet a doubt?' "'My young friend, I told you from the first that I would not believe in your vampire, and I tell you now that if one was to come by and lay hold of me by the throat, as long as I could at all gasp for breath, I would tell him he was a damned impostor. This is carrying incredulity to the verge of obstinacy. Far beyond it, if you please. You will not be convinced, 
said Marchdale. I most decidedly, on this point, will not. Then you are one who would doubt a miracle, if you saw it with your own eyes. I would, because I do not believe in miracles. I should endeavour to find some rational and some scientific means of accounting for the phenomenon, and that's the very reason why we have no miracles nowadays, between you and I, and no prophets and saints, and all that sort of thing. I would rather avoid such observations in such a place as this, said Marchdale. Nay, do not be the moral coward, cried Mr. Chillingworth. To make your opinions, or the expression of them, dependent upon any certain locality. I know not what to think, said Henry. I am bewildered quite. Let us now come away. Mr. Marchdale replaced the lid of the coffin, and then the little party moved towards the staircase. Henry turned before he ascended, and glanced back into the vault. Oh, he said, if I could but think there had been some mistake, some error of judgment, on which my mind could rest for hope. I deeply regret, said Marchdale, that I so strenuously advised this expedition. I did hope that from it would have resulted much good. And you have every reason so to hope, said Chillingworth. I advised it likewise, and I tell you that its result perfectly astonishes me, and I will not allow myself to embrace at once all the conclusions to which it would seem to lead me. I am satisfied, said Henry. I know you both advised me for the best. The curse of heaven seems now to have fallen upon me and my house. Oh, nonsense, said Chillingworth. What for? Alas, I know not. Then you may depend that heaven would never act so oddly. In the first place, heaven don't curse anybody, and in the second, it is too just to inflict pain where pain is not amply deserved. They ascended the gloomy staircase of the vault. The countenances of both George and Henry were very much saddened, and it was quite evident that their thoughts were by far too busy to enable them to enter into any conversation. They did not, and particularly George, seemed to hear all that was said to them. Their intellects seemed almost stunned by the unexpected circumstance of the disappearance of the body of their ancestor. All along they had, although almost unknown to themselves, felt a sort of conviction that they must find some remains of Marmaduke Bannerworth, which would render the supposition even in the most superstition minds, that he was the vampire, a thing totally and physically impossible. But now the whole question assumed a far more bewildering shape. The body was not in its coffin. It had not there quietly slept the long sleep of death common to humanity. Where was it, then? What had become of it? Where, how, and under what circumstances had it been removed? Had it itself burst the bands that held it, and hideously stalked forth under the world again to make one of its seeming inhabitants, and kept up for a hundred years a dreadful existence by such adventures as it had consummated at the hall, where, in the course of ordinary human life, it had once lived? All these were questions which irresistibly pressed themselves upon the consideration of Henry and his brother. They were awful questions. And yet, Take any sober, sane, thinking, educated man, 
and show him all that they had just seen, subject him to all that they had just been subjected, and say if human reason, and all the arguments that the subtlest brain could back it with, would be able to hold out against such a vast accumulation of horrible evidences, and say, I don't believe it. Mr. Chillingworth's was the only plan. He would not argue the question. He said at once, I will not believe this thing. Upon this point I will yield to no evidence whatsoever. That was the only way of disposing of such a question. But there are not many who could so dispose of it, and not one so much interested in it as were the brothers Bannerworth, who could at all hope to get into such a state of mind. The boards were laid carefully down again and the screws replaced. Henry found himself unequal to the task, so it was done by Marchdale, who took pains to replace everything in the same state in which they had found it, even to laying the matting at the bottom of the pew. They extinguished the light, and, with heavy hearts, they all walked towards the window, to leave the sacred edifice by the same means they had entered it. "'Shall we replace the pane of glass?' said Marchdale. "'Oh, it matters not, it matters not,' said Henry listlessly. "'Nothing matters now. I care not what becomes of me. I am getting weary of a life which now must be one of misery and dread. "'You must not allow yourself to fall into such a state of mind as this,' said the doctor, "'or you will become a patient of mine very quickly. I cannot help it. Well, but be a man. If there are serious evils affecting you, fight out against them the best way you can.' "'I cannot!' "'Come now, listen to me.' We need not, I think, trouble ourselves about the pane of glass, so come along. He took the arm of Henry, and walked on with him a little in advance of the others. Henry, he said, the best way you may depend of meeting evils, be they great or small, is to get up an obstinate feeling of defiance against them. Now when anything occurs which is uncomfortable for me, I endeavour to convince myself, and I have no great difficulty in doing so, that I am a decidedly injured man. Indeed! Yes, I get very angry, and that gets up a kind of obstinacy, which makes me not half feel so much mental misery, as would be my portion if I were to succumb to the evil, and commence whining over it, as many people do, under the presence of being resigned. But this family affliction of mine transcends anything that anybody else ever endured. I don't know that but it is a view of the subject which, if I were you, would only make me more obstinate. What can I do? In the first place, I would say to myself, there may or there may not be supernatural beings, who, from some physical derangement of the ordinary nature of things, make themselves obnoxious to living people. If there are, damn them! There may be vampires, and if there are, I defy them. Let the imagination paint its very worst terrors. Let fear do what it will, and what it can, in peopling the mind with horrors. Shrink from nothing, and even then I would defy them all. Is that not like defying heaven? Most certainly not. For in all we say and all we do, we act from the impulses of that mind which is given to us by heaven itself. If heaven creates an intellect and a mind of a certain order, Heaven will not quarrel that it does the work which it was adapted to do. I know these are your opinions. 
I have heard you mention them before. They are the opinions of every rational person, Henry Bannerworth, because they will stand the test of reason, and what I urge upon you is not to allow yourself to be mentally prostrated. Even if a vampire had paid a visit to your house, defy him, I say, fight him! Self-preservation is a great law of nature, implanted in all our hearts. Do you summon it to your aid? I will endeavour to think as you would have me. I thought more than once of summoning religion to my aid. Well, that is religion. Indeed. I consider so, and the most rational religion of all. All that we read about religion does not seem expressly to agree with it. You may consider as an allegory. But, Mr. Chillingworth, I cannot and will not renounce the sublime truths of Scripture. They may be incomprehensible, they may be inconsistent, and some of them may look ridiculous. But still they are sacred and sublime, and I will not renounce them, although my reason may not accord with them, because they are the laws of heaven. No wonder this powerful argument silenced Mr. Chillingworth, who was one of those characters in society who hold most dreadful opinions, and who would destroy religious beliefs and all the different sects of the world if they could, and endeavour to introduce instead some horrible system of human reason and profound philosophy. But how soon the religious man silences his opponent, and let it not be supposed that, because his opponent says no more upon the subject, he does so because he is disgusted with the stupidity of the other. No, it is because he is completely beaten, and has nothing more to say. The distance now between the church and the hall was nearly traversed, and Mr. Chillingworth, who was a very good man, notwithstanding his disbelief in certain things, of course, paved the way for him to hell, took a kind leave of Mr. Marchdale and the brothers, promising to call on the following morning and see Flora. Henry and George then, in earnest conversation with Marchdale, proceeded homewards. It was evident that the scene in the vault had made a deep and saddening impression on them, and one which was not likely easily to be eradicated. End of chapter 8